It's time for episode 18 of the Clockwise Podcast from the editors of Tech Hive, PC World, and Mac World, recorded December 5th, 2013. Clockwise, four guests, four topics, 30 minutes. Welcome to Clockwise, a podcast that takes its time, but not yours. I am your host, Jason Snell, and not sitting across from me is Dan Morin, who is on assignment. And so instead, I have, uh, I've tapped our vast reservoir of substitute Dans and come up with an excellent one. It's Macworld Senior Editor Dan Frakes. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. Glad to help out the Dan. Thank cause. you. Thank you. There's got to be a Dan. There's got to be a Dan. Uh, also on today's show is Leah Yamshan. She's assistant editor at TechHive. Hi, Leah. Hi, everyone. Good to have you back. Happy to be here as always. And our fourth slot is filled by Chris Breen, senior editor for Macworld. Hi, Chris. Hello, Jason. You're on another podcast that isn't the Macworld podcast. Yeah, every so often. Thanks for slumming it over here on Clockwise. <laughs> well, you Mr. Know, Big I Shot. Try to spread it around. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate your generosity. So, let me explain for the listeners and for uh, for the value of our panel how this works. Every one of us is going to bring a technology topic that we think is worth discussing today. And in the interest of not wasting your time, we're going to spend about five minutes on each topic, and then there'll be a little silly bonus topic at the end. So I'll go first, and then the action will move clockwise. Working on the iPad is what I wanted to talk about. You know, there have been a lot of debates on the internet about this, uh, especially if you follow Apple and Mac blogs. And we can talk about working on tablets in general. Um, tablet productivity. There seems to be a lot of interest in it. And I think the question is, is it really practical now? Is this something that's going to be practical in the future? Or is this something that we're doing today? And I'll say for me, I still do most of my work on a laptop. I have a MacBook Air. I do most of my work there. But I have written stories on an iPad. I have used a Bluetooth keyboard with an iPad. I've actually even edited as a test a podcast on an iPad. And I, it was, it was not, I would say, speedy, but I, I did it. Um, so it's possible to do it. I, what I'm and and people debate that you know I, I think there's not a question that you can do it. My question is, do you do it, and do you can you see yourself doing it in the future of getting your work done on uh, a tablet? And we'll start with uh, substitute Dan Dan Franks. What do you think? <laughs> I just I gotta laugh. I'm I'm the consolation Dan. No, um, <laughs> I I I actually work a lot on my iPad. Um, I I'm as as you know from all the articles I've written, I. I test like, you know, dozens and dozens of, of uh, Bluetooth keyboards. And that for me is is the sort of enabler, is that I can do a lot of consumption work, uh, read an RSS, do an email, that kind of stuff uh, on my iPad by itself, but add a Bluetooth keyboard, which there's some really nice ones that are really light and really small. Uh, and I can basically do almost anything I would do in the office. Just It's not as efficient as it when I have a big, you know, two 20-some inch monitors, but I can still... Um, I can write articles. I can publish stuff to to our CMS. So yeah, I I actually do it. And when I go on vacation or a trip, I don't bring a laptop anymore. Wow. So you you don't have any work that requires a Mac. There, I mean, there are a few things, and there are some things that when I have my iPad, I file for do on the Mac. You know that kind of thing. But <laughs> I I would say eighty percent of the work I do. Um, I could do on an iPad if I had to. And so when I go on vacation, that's sort of the you know, that's the thing. I could do this better on my laptop, but man, it would be great to just take my iPad. And so I do. 
Um, I'm kind of like Dan in that when I travel, I try my best not to bring my MacBook, but I always bring my iPad. And I know that if something comes up that I absolutely have to jump on and do some some work on something right away, I can I trust my iPad and that I can get it done. Um, in terms of using it as my primary work machine, um, that's not something that I I'm not at that place right now. It's an integral part of my workflow, but it's not my it's not a primary part um, of what I do. Um, I use it a lot for taking notes. I love Evernote um, and that especially paired with my Mac going back and forth between the two is a really nice fluid process for me uh, when it comes to drafting stories and getting my ideas ready to go. Um, I think, too, for other professions, the iPad is wonderful as a work tool, though. Um, Prior to my job here, I was doing a bit of teaching and tutoring, and I used my iPad all the time to... uh, make presentations for my students, um, monitor their progress, um, and they really liked it as well to kind of get to use the iPad as a teaching tool. So, yeah, it has a lot of potential depending on what you're doing with it. Um, I generally do work in a creative sort of way, in meaning that I'm making something. And so whether it's music or if I'm writing, I don't like the tool that I'm using to get in the way of, of what I'm doing. So yes, I could work in GarageBand on my iPad, but it's not the same thing as having an external keyboard that I can play. And if I'm writing a long-form piece, I would much rather use a real keyboard versus one that doesn't give me any kind of feedback on a glass screen. So in terms of the day-to-day stuff I have to do. No, I don't use it for that. However, once work hours are over or I'm waiting for something to happen on my computer, I'm on my iPad all the time. And that's for browsing, that's for email, that's for Twitter. So it's sort of all the ancillary things where I don't have to work long form and I don't have to worry so much about the input device that I'm using that I'll take up the iPad. It sounds like a lot of us are saying it's a great sort of secondary device or when you want to back off a little bit from your main device, but your main device is still a a Mac. Well, it also sounds like what you're doing, it really is the determining factor too. You know, when I'm just working on text articles, the iPad's great. If I was like Chris trying to create music, I think I wouldn't be happy with it. Um, But I, I will say that a lot of the tools that have come out recently for productivity, like editorial, the editorial app, drafts, um, launch center pro, these kind of things that help you work with multiple apps together those have really enabled me to be able to do more because when it's just one app and then you have to switch modes completely to another app, that makes it more difficult. I think we're in an interesting place in the iPad's evolution now. Step one is nice try, but no. Step two is, well, yeah, you can do it, but it's really weird and hard. And step three is, oh yeah, of course you can do that. And I feel like we've entered step two now. I can't uh, take a, only an iPad with me on a trip because I have a couple of podcasts every week that I have to edit, mm-hmm. and you can't edit a podcast on an iPad. And and I have used, um, I think it's called Aurea, uh, to edit a podcast on my iPad. You can edit a podcast, a multi-track podcast on your iPad. So now it becomes, like you said, which is it, it takes me five times as long to edit a podcast on an iPad than it does on a Mac, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. And when you talk about a keyboard, you can use those with an iPad. It just re- requires a lot more stuff. I mean, you could write on an iPad with a Bluetooth keyboard. You could attach a MIDI keyboard via USB to an iPad, but it does call into question all the software and the whole workflow. Well, right, and I, and I won't, don't mean to get really artsy-fartsy about it, but I think when the flow is going, whether you're writing and everything's just coming out the right way or whether you're composing or whether you're doing something in art, 
you really don't want anything in the way to keep that flow from being slowed down or stopped altogether because you have to think about the interface that you're using. So as long as you have the tools that allow that, great. For me, the iPad really isn't that because if I'm editing a podcast, for example, I know I can do it, but there's so many little niggly uh, yep. adjustments that you have to make when you're doing it. And you really don't have the opportunity if you, with your big fat finger when you go, no, I really just want to take like half a second off this thing. You can easily do it with a mouse, but with an iPad, not so easy. Big fat finger? Speak for yourself, mister. Uh, <laughs> oh, any, anyway, no, I think this is good. I think this is a, a very interesting place we are now in the evolution of these devices where they are now more productive uh, and you can do it, but there's still some amount, the people who are doing amazing productivity on the iPad, there is still some amount of that that I think is sort of being forced in there. Like, let's let's show that this can be done, but it's not easy. Like I like I said, and I think, I think we've all said, I could do my job on an iPad, but a lot of it would still, or at least some of it would still be a trial, um, but that's up from not being able to do it. And, you know, progress. We'll see where it goes. Let's move on to our next topic, which is going to be uh, back to consolation, Dan, I guess he is now. <laughs> Uh, Dan Frakes, what's your uh, what's your topic? Uh, so I saw an article earlier earlier this year, and they were they were celebrating the fact that for one weekend MTV was going to play music videos. What? Oh! <laughs> and I said, you know, this is funny for those of us who came of age of MTV, right? Because when we were kids, MTV was videos, right? I mean, there were huge events where everyone in the country gathered around their TVs at eight o'clock to watch. The thriller premiere, or yep. whatever you know, or Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. Imagine it's, it's a YouTube video playlist on the television. Yeah, and so <laughs> I mean, this is crazy for us. That wait, they actually have a weekend that's videos. Okay, so the general consensus seems to be that there are two reasons that MTV doesn't play videos. One is that reality shows are just too popular unfortunately. Um, and the other is just that internet has killed video because people find out about music online they from friends, from social networks. Um, you know, they don't need to watch videos to discover stuff anymore. Um, and, you know, I just got to thinking about it as a video kid myself when I was growing up, but I, I don't buy it. And I think there's tons of video out there right now. It's just that it's not on MTV. There's probably more than ever, in fact. Uh, and I did some, some uh, over the last... Since I read that, I guess I should say, I've looked around and tried to pretend I was a teenager again. Um, you know, between YouTube, Vivo, Vimeo, all these websites, there's tons of music videos out there. Um, and so I'm just wondering what, first of all, do any of you watch videos anymore? But also, what do you think? Are they dead because of the internet? And to pretend when answering that you are the younger version of yourself. Oh my gosh, this is such a fun topic. Um, I... I don't find myself actively looking for music videos anymore. Um, every once in a while, something good, like Kanye's brilliant Born 2 music video that came out two weeks ago. <laughs> every once in a while, something like that um, will come up and I'll watch it and I'll enjoy it. Um, but I I find that I'm consuming music in different ways now. I also grew up with MTV, but in a very different time. I was a teenager slash pre-teenager during the TRL boom of the late 90s. So I would like run home from school to watch TRL to see if my favorite music videos that I've seen a thousand times made the cut that day. <laughs> but it was still a big part of, you know, I'd be excited to see these videos over and over again. I don't, I, I agree that there's probably more videos out there than ever before. They just don't have, even though we have these great platforms to watch them, unless you're really into that specific band, um, I don't think people are really looking for music videos anymore. 
I think music video died when the Sullivan show went off the air. <laughs> okay, for, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, <clears throat> and Shindig, too. Bye, guys. That was real music. Uh, no, I think there are actually more videos out there, and I think for the same reason there's more music out there and more pretty interesting video out there is because we have the tools in our hands now that we can do this. At one time, to make a music video, you had to have an enormous budget and a studio behind you and a label behind you, and the same thing with making albums. And now we have this technology in our hands that is really affordable, where you can make a great-sounding track for almost no money because you've got a computer and great tools for it, and you've got cheap cameras that do 1080p video, and you can sync these two things together so anybody with a certain amount of talent can put together a music video that looks really, really good, and you don't need the labels and the studios behind you to do it. Yeah, I also think I was reading about YouTube is going to do a... a probably a uh, music service which is weird because they're run by google and google already has google all access play new music service free thing whatever it's really complicated name um but i was thinking about it in that in that sense too that you've got youtube you've got vivo you've got random access to videos and so um, yeah my music video discovery as a child of the music video era i remember like us all being excited when the latest michael jackson video would come out because that is how old i am and now i just i see music videos when somebody links to them on twitter i mean that's literally that's what i do and it's totally random access like hey watch this video um and you know chris is right the technology has made it really interesting for uh, it's not just videos by the artists it's videos by fans that use the soundtracks sometimes embraced by the artist um didn't uh I'm going to mangle his name. It's a fake name anyway. Gautier, um do a video that was a literally a mashup of all the parodies of the videos of somebody that I used to know and released it on his video channel himself. I mean, yes, how great yes. is that, right? Yeah. So I think music videos are interesting, but now they're they're no longer... They were weird anyway, right, on TV because they were all different lengths and it was like trying to put a radio format on TV. I mean, MTV was brilliant in one level, but I can see how the TV industry wanted to kind of mash it down back into being a TV channel. And I think it, the internet is like the better medium for music videos than television was. So I think it's I think it's great. It's very different and it's much more dispersed. But that's true of all the media that we have now, not just, not just music videos. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think a couple of you hit on it that, that now... Nowadays, music videos are more like viral videos than they are actually you go somewhere to watch them. I think most people discover them because someone has pointed them out to them, right? But, um, but I, I, I'd also like to say that there's a couple of things I think that are, besides what you've said, Jason, that are better about videos now. And one is that it's not like radio anymore, where you used to have to sit and there was like a rotation of 10 videos, half of which you didn't like, and you had to sit through the horrible ones to see the ones you liked over again. It was just like FM radio, right? Um, I can now, I can just go find the ones I want, watch them, and then go back to what I'm doing. Uh, but the other thing is there's just, you can do more with them. Instead of just being a four-minute video of watching someone do something, they're interactive. There's there's videos where, like, you can actually do stuff and make things happen in the video. Or, or like you said, um, fans can actually do their own videos. And I was telling Jason that the one that I actually, that got me thinking about this earlier was, there's a new, it's a web site called 24 Hours of Happy. Oh, the and, Pharrell uh, thing, right? Right, Pharrell, yeah. Pharrell Williams, who um, most of you know from the guy who sang the vocals on Get Lucky by Daft Punk. Um, he's a hip-hop artist, and he's done the soundtracks to both the Despicable Me movies. And one of the songs on the latest one is is called Happy. It's infectiously earwormy, 
and very happy. But what they did is they went to LA this fall and they recorded 24 hours of people walking down the street, dancing to the song and lip syncing to it, like 24 solid hours. And everyone was actually happening at that particular time of day. So, so you'd see that you see someone dancing to the song the end of the song, the, the camera fades up, fades back down to the same physical location with a new person. And it's 24 hours of this. Some of the, <laughs> some of wow. the people are obviously pros, right? They're professional dancers, but others are just ordinary people, like 80-year-old women and men, five-year-old kids, you know, people at a gas station waiting in line. Um, and the, the great thing about it is that the entire site is interactive. So there's like, as you move your mouse over it, there's a, there's a clock dial and you can just drag the cursor to any point and you can see... The person who was dancing at 3:45 p.m. and Pharrell himself actually does so on every hour. He does his own section, but it's just it's awesome. I mean, it's like for one, it's a snapshot of L.A. because they actually travel around the whole city because everybody's moving. Um, but uh, it's and it's also like an eight track, right? So when you skip ahead, you skip to the same place in same point in the song, just the next person. <laughs> so it's just fabulous. And I was I actually spent like four hours over the last couple of weeks with my kids just watching. Wow, that's cool. I will we'll also we should also mention we got to move on, but uh, the like a Rolling Stone video uh, that they did for right. Bob Dylan's website, oh, yeah. which is similarly, it's a bunch of different TV channels with actual, in many cases, actual TV personalities, except they're all lip syncing to like a Rolling Stone, and you flip between them like an eight track. For those who are old enough to remember eight tracks, thanks for that metaphor, Dan. Yes, um, it, I explain that. It's right? always <laughs> in the same part of the song, so that's also very cool. Okay, we got to move on, Leah. What's your topic? I want to talk about robots. Yay. So, yay. Um, so we know that um, Amazon has some overly ambitious plan to have a drone delivery service. And then yesterday, Andy Rubin from Google came out and was like, oh, well, we also have a robot delivery service thing that we want to do with the Google cars and robots that bring the packages up to your door. So obviously, these are just kind of like high level concepts now. But do you think projects like this will ever see the light of day? And is this something that we want or need to have? It seems to me, as I said on Twitter yesterday, that Google spent a lot of time reading technology runs amok tweets, uh, sorry, books from the 1970s. And took all the wrong lessons from them. Instead of like, oh my God, we should not allow this to happen. This could be terrible. Or like reading Robopocalypse, for example, and then thinking, no, this would be so great. Let's do this. This would be great. And it, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Because, I mean, if Amazon drones come by, of course people are going to shoot them down. Because why wouldn't you? <laughs> and a robot comes to your door. And of course you're going to find some way to decapitate it and turn it off and Put it in your basement because why wouldn't you? So you know. I don't know. You know, I, I, I imagine um, one of these guys getting on stage and saying, "I'd like to with my army of robots." I did I say army? I meant collection of helpful, friendly robots. Right? Um, I almost have to recuse myself from this topic because I have a novel that I'm revising now that I hope to release at some point onto the internet that involves a company that's essentially Google and killer robots. So, you know, that's what I think. Um, I think robots are, I, I think Google's doing a lot of cool stuff. I think uh, self-driving cars is going to be a thing. Um, I'm not so sure about uh, things like Amazon's drones or, um, 
or some of the other stuff that's been talked about in terms of robotics. I guess, you know, robotics and factories make sense in industrial settings and computer intelligence and things like cars make sense to me. Um, some of this other stuff seems uh, totally crazy, but that's okay. We seem to be in an era where tech companies are just one-upping each other with insane PR that will never happen. And uh, it's fun, um, but people shouldn't take it too seriously. I think I used up a lot of my time on the last one, so I'll just make it quick. I think, yes, this will eventually happen, but not anytime soon. Um, And two, this was a phenomenal PR coup where he got massive amounts of coverage from like 30 seconds of speaking. My takeaway of it was also that it was just a big PR thing, but man, it's really funny to think about. Oh yeah, it's hilarious. It is. It's more entertainment than reality, but it is. It is fascinating. And maybe the Google robots could shoot down the Amazon drones as they're flying, and it could be this battle of the who can deliver it faster before our drones versus robots war happens. Oh, that would be awesome. That's 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 actually (laughs) brilliant because it's like we've thought Mm -hmm. about the Terminator as being the machines versus the humans, but what if all the different machines work for different (laughs) corporations and are fighting each other while the humans watch to see who can serve us? Yes, and then the winner gets to kill all humans. (laughs) So that works. Yeah. All right. I'm going to write that into my novel and credit Leah for it. Lovely. Can't wait. (laughs) Thank you. Chris, what's your topic? Um, You know, we've heard a lot about uh, various companies tracking what we do on the internet and having all our preferences and knowing everything. And through Facebook, we've told them what we like and what we love. And my question is, if this is the case, how come ads and recommendations are just so crap? Because I often go to websites and I go, oh, look, this ad. I have no interest in this. And let me go over here. Oh, that's this is no. Why would I want this car? No, I don't want that car. Why don't I'll tell you what? I'll go to Amazon because they know what I buy because that's where I do all my shopping. And so I go to Amazon and I look at my recommendations and go, cool, let's see. I bought an SSD drive the other day. What are they going to recommend? 19 more SSD drives. I just bought one. I don't need any more. Thank you very much. How about this? Let's see. I bought this Hitchcock collection. That looks good. No, I don't want the Vincent Price collection. No, it has no, no, that's not tasteful. I have to wonder what kind of intelligence is really built into these things, or is there any? Do they take the broadest possible theme and just say, well, here, and then they just throw a bunch of junk at you? I wonder sometimes if there's an uncanny valley of of, uh, of advertising. Um, uncanny valley is the idea that once you make a robot, hey, it's robots again. Once you make a robot or an android a little bit too human, it gets creepy. Or uh, like a CGI uh, per character in a movie, if they if they uh, look like a Pixar person, it's okay. But if they start to look like a real person, then it gets weird. And I, I, I here's follow me here. Um, when when the personalized recommendations are really personal, like I had this happen where I was shopping for something in Amazon and then I went to some other website and it was like, hey, that thing you didn't bought, you should buy it. <laughs> like it was really creepy that I it was a thing I had looked at on Amazon and they were advertising it to me. And so sometimes I wonder if what the advertisers are really doing is they want to they want to put you in and some of this is is fact i actually know it to be a fact they want to put you in a pool like a demographic pool of some sort and it could be different kinds of demographics or interests and then sell into that but i feel like they almost don't want it to be too personalized because the danger even on facebook where you expect some personalization the danger is that you go from it being helpful to being creepy if it's you want it to be almost you want to feel like serendipity you want to be like oh i am interested in that ad i will click on it um and not it being like that ad is stalking me and so that that's I bet you, Chris, that they can do even better jobs at matching your interests. Um, 
than they're doing, <laughs> but they're afraid of the of that it won't be as effective because it'll it'll scare them. It also may be that you've got do not track turned on and they have no idea who you are. That's also a possibility. I like that. Very. I like that theory. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with Jason. I think part of it is they're afraid of being too too creepy. I think the other thing is, like you said, Chris, that the algorithms aren't sophisticated enough to to say you bought this, you definitely don't need another one, or you didn't really buy this because you need more of it. For example, I just bought a, a, a sam- Christmas sampler on, I, on um, Amazon.com because it had a couple songs my wife and kids liked, but it also had some really bad songs. So now my recommendations are like Christmas Pickens, a banjo Christmas. And, you know, so... <laughs> hey, that's a great album. What is wrong with you, Dan? <laughs> I'm, I'm, maybe it's a great album. I don't know. I'm just saying I would never have gone to Amazon and looked for a banjo Christmas, right? Um, or maybe I buy something for the kitchen that... You only need one of, and I've bought it. So now I never want to see it ever again. Would you like another KitchenAid stand mixer, Dan? I don't cut four. Yeah, I don't. I don't slice four pizzas at once. I (laughs) only need one pizza slicer. (laughs) So yeah, I don't think that they're sophisticated enough yet to be able to to look through what you bought and said this person. This is something you might need more of or more like. Well, well, I think some of the algorithms are not sophisticated enough to know what to recommend. Some of the women's shopping ones are kind of dead on to the point where it has crossed the line into spooky. So, um, Jason, I had a similar experience where I was looking at an item on like Nordstrom or something like that, and I decided not to get it, um, but it knew that I was on the fence. So it seemed like every other site that I went to, there would be ads from other sites that had the same boots. It was like, hey, remember these? And then when I finally was like, okay, bye, and I will get them, then it was like, do you want tights? So I see all these things for tights and jeans and other articles of clothing to go with that thing of boots that I just ordered. So that was a little bit like, whoa, you you don't know my life why why are you i it was a little it was a little off-putting um so are you saying they harassed you into buying the boots is that i mean a little bit it just <laughs> kind of followed me and i was like all right i guess i want those enough i guess you did your job targeted advertising gosh foiled um and then other times i it's interesting that they kind of try i feel like the facebook ads try to guess what i'm interested in based on what all my friends are interested in so lately I've been seeing a lot of um, like baby products and fertility treatments and things like that because a lot of my a lot of my friends are entering into parenthood for the first time. So it's a little bit like uh, I how can you differentiate between what I what my interests are and what who I follow and what their interests are? I feel like that technology needs to get a little bit more defined too so that i'm not seeing things that i have no interest in yeah the last thought is to amazon um just because my daughter bought this really creepy uh sort of magic unicorn head for halloween i never (laughs) want to be pushed the even creepier squirrel head on my recommendations so if you just take (laughs) that off thank you very much you yeah. like creepy heads. Would you like more? <laughs> yeah, creepy apparently, heads? I now I'm on the creepy head list. It's like nobody would ever want the the original item, and now you want me to have more. All right, we just have enough time for a very quick around the horn about what's the best present you've ever gotten. That is our bonus question today. What's the best present you've ever gotten for the holidays? Because it is the holiday season. Hanukkah's just over. Christmas is coming. Thanksgiving was just here. I still have turkey in my refrigerator. So, guys. Think of a good holiday present from your past. Dan, we'll start with you. My, my wife always laughs at me because 
whenever it comes time for the holidays, I'm always like set my gifts aside because I get really excited about like, giving stuff to the kids and my family and stuff. I'm like, open it, open it. And she's like, you get more out of watching us than you do opening things. And I think she's right because I can remember what I've given her every Christmas and I can't remember what she's given me. So don't tell her wow. that. But Okay, so you heard it here first, folks. St. Dan Frakes' favorite <laughs> gift is watching other people get gifts. Wow. Trust me, my wife doesn't like the fact that I can't remember what she's giving me for <laughs> holidays. So. Leah, what about you? Favorite gift? Well, if we're looking back at the Yamshan family home video collection, the star of my excitement, I guess, would be Kitty Surprise for Hanukkah 1992. I was very, very excited, jumping up and down, screaming over this stuffed animal cat that had um, a pouch with little kittens in it. And it was probably, like, not a very expensive gift at all, but I was so stoked on it. And it's kind of like one of our our family jokes now is like, oh, are you going to get Kitty Surprise again this year, Leah? Is that number one on your list? And it will always be number one on my list. This present is good, but it's no Kitty Surprise. It is no Kitty Surprise. <laughs> Chris, you have a favorite gift? I do. Years ago, my mother and uh, ex-girlfriend, now ex-girlfriend, uh, purchased a Chapman stick for me. It's a 10-string instrument. It's very weird. I'm just going to ask you to look it up on the internet. Um, I hope to be able to play it someday. Okay, here, I I actually made reference to this when um, Elon Musk unveiled the Hyperloop, his concept for a crazy air-driven pod that sends people from San Francisco to LA in a matter of minutes. Um, The Hyperloop was preceded by the rocket tubes, which were, it was like a, a box with a fan and these plastic tubes that you hooked up and there was like a little pod and you put a guy in it and uh, he would circulate around with all the excitement of running your own public transit system. And I loved the rocket tubes. That was my favorite. But guess what, folks? Since we've been carefully watching the clock, that is literally all the time we have. We are done and we did it all without Dan Morin. Amazing. Dan Frakes, thank you for being my consolation, Dan, and thanks for being on. Anytime, Jason. Okay, I'm going to hold you to that promise. If I need consolation from a Dan, I'm coming to you. Leah Yamshun, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And Chris Breen, thanks for, uh, again, thanks for coming on a podcast that isn't your podcast. I'm always happy to be here. Very generous. Very generous of you. This was great. So thanks to everybody out there for listening. And until next time from all of us here at Clockwise, watch what you say and keep watching the clock. Bye.